Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone, and welcome to part two of my conversation with Samantha. It's and she's someone who has an interesting story to share because she comes at this kind of in a different way than a lot of other people I interview. She actually has a site on social media called anaccidentalscientologist.com. So feel free to check it out. She is someone who was on the staff of a place called Narconon, one of the Scientology treatment centers. And in this part of my interview with her, she talks about what it was like day to day, but also how she finally got out, how much effort it took, and also the trauma that she dealt with for many, many years afterwards. I'm so happy that she's coming on today to tell the second part of her story. And here she is. So I want to welcome, I want to welcome Samantha back to this show. And we started a conversation that was very powerful and moving. And her story is unique in so many ways because it has this interesting permutation of having been in Scientology without necessarily being a Scientologist. And that that's true for a number of people. And uh, it's important for people to know. So Samantha, I thank you for coming on again and talking. And I know what you would like to be able to do is is to get more into your story with more specifics. So take me back to wherever you'd like to start the story again and kind of fill in more details. Okay, sure. Hi, Rachel. Let's go back to the Rodney King riots. The LA riots was a big turning point. Most of LA was on fire and it was like a war zone, basically. And I was due to go into work on, you know, going to Narconon and I didn't go. And I uh, went and borrowed a phone at the office of the apartment building and told them I wasn't coming. And that was completely unacceptable. And they weren't kidding when they said, no, you get down here, you get down here, like within 15 minutes. And I knew I wasn't going because, I mean, people were getting like, pulled out of their cars it was like it was bad you know there was no way I was going to walk out there by myself and for anything let alone going to work and um that it just hit me like a brick wall at that moment that they had no consideration no care for my safety I mean just my safety let alone any other repercussions of you know doing what they're bidding and it was just, it was time to go. Like, I knew that I was done. I knew that I'd been had. I knew that everything that I'd been telling myself to ignore was true, that there was something majorly wrong. I couldn't put my finger on it yet. I was too close to it. But um, that was enough to break through whatever fog I was in. And it was just a memorable moment. I was like, I'm done, but I have to play this out a little for a few days to figure out what we're going to do, me and my boyfriend. Okay. I wonder also when you had that moment, did you reflect, and I I want you to be able to continue with the story where it is, because it's so powerful. And I remember Rodney King and the riots and when everything broke out and everything was this tinderbox. And it was a, not only a troubling time, but a scary time. And a lot of people say that, you know, it was time. It was time for something like this to happen and for things to be shown, for to be really 
kind of dis disclosing how the situation was for a lot of people. But here, I wonder in that moment when you realize that they just didn't care about your safety, did it make you think about other times that that was also the case in your previous years already with them? Yeah. Every, we had something called QM. Uh, it's a quartermaster, as a Navy or an Army term. And every night, somebody on staff at Narconon has to stay at, or I would imagine at all the orgs, but I was at Narconon. Someone on staff has to stay up all night long and patrol the parameter of the building. And make sure that people, you're supposed to make sure that people aren't coming in. We were making sure that people weren't leaving. But I'm basically downtown LA, Olympic and Pico. I mean, not a good area. In the middle of the night, no protection. We didn't have walkie-talkies. There was no cell phones then. Right. We didn't have anything. I didn't have like a fake baton I could hit somebody with. Nothing. <laughs> and I was terrified those nights. But I kept talking myself out of it kept saying, no case on post, which is a Scientology sentence for um, leave everything at the door, like including your common sense, basically. So yeah, all these things came flooding back. The times that I had detoxed people that I knew needed to be in the hospital, that by the grace of God, they didn't die. I So many times, you know, I didn't know um, CPR. And there was one time this guy was choking and I was like, oh my God, I can't even do the high, I mean, Luckily, there were other people there. Right. Okay. Because I know in, the, in those moments, people have these aha moments where they think, okay, this is actually not the first time I felt this way, but this is the first time I've become aware. Uh, and then it kind of opens the floodgates to some other memories and some other realities and memories of other times that felt that way, where you really, you ignored it or were taught to ignore it or felt like you didn't have a choice but to ignore it. But then it reaches this point of kind of maximum capacity where you can't help but notice it okay all right so take it away um so they um managed to get me into narconon that day basically they told me they were going to do a, a repair and it was going to be okay and um you know i didn't have to leave we didn't have to have this big blow up none of this was necessary because a lot had ensued in the couple hours that they had come to get me and i was in the actual building with them I was like, you guys didn't care. It was like this big thing. And they're like, we don't have these emotions when you're on staff. They aren't permitted. They, they, they were looking at me like this. Like I wasn't talking like a Scientologist for the first time since I'd started. I, I'm sure I sounded like just, you know, another crazy person to them. But it was all reality. And I was, so I agreed. They said, well, we're going to get you through a repair. It's going to be okay. And I still trusted it to an extent. Enough to tell myself, okay, it's only for a couple of days. So they sent me out to Oklahoma to a market on there called Shalako. Um, not called Shalako. It was in, it was on Indian land of a Shalako reservation for the Ponca tribe. And Narconon, Scientology had purchased the land from the tribe, thinking that they could have a rehab without federal regulations because it's on Native American land. That's why they went from Shalako. But so I ended up there, and um, basically they did. They kept me, and um, they wouldn't let me leave. Three months into it, I was still there. Um, I had a quote-unquote twin, which was a guard, somebody that was watching me at all times. Um, she was with me constantly. I couldn't do anything by myself. Mm -hmm. I found out I was pregnant 
a couple weeks after I got there. And that's when I started asking, how much longer am I going to be here? When can I go back? And I wasn't getting any answers. And you just, you'll be done when it's done. But I wasn't doing anything. They weren't helping me in any way. I was just sort of being held. And I wasn't allowed access to telephone. I couldn't call anybody. Um, I wasn't getting mail. I had no way of getting mail out. There weren't, we didn't have like personal computers or anything back then. And um, I was stuck for a good couple months until uh, one day the cook was going into town and I asked to go with them to the Walmart and um, managed to tear out some pages of a phone book there of yellow pages of local churches. Eventually, a couple days later, get a moment, actually it was like a good half an hour to a phone and I just started calling the churches going, can you help me? I'm over here in Newkirk and I, I got nowhere. Um, I did get hold of a girl that had graduated from Narconon and she was in Ohio and I knew her phone number and it was the only phone number I knew and I called her and um, she set everything up with the local church that I had called and they came and got me. And so I'm curious, when you call these places, what did you say? Because so often people think, I don't even quite know how to explain the situation without sounding like a crazy person myself. So what did you say to people when you called, even though they didn't respond until finally someone did? Well, I learned, I think I made four or five phone calls altogether. The first two, I don't know what I said, but it didn't work. And I remember on the second one after the person kind of stuttered something and then hung up. I was like, okay, this isn't working and I have limited time. So I remember thinking of what I was going to say and it was something, and it wasn't like help, I'm being held hostage, which was like the other one was <laughs> the first call. Um, I said where I was, um, I said my name and I said, and I can't promise that I can get a hold of you again or that you can get a hold of me. And that's, and I said, but they, people locally, since I took the local churches, um, Narconon was a big local problem. So I knew they would know the story. If I said, I'm at Shalako, like that wouldn't be like me calling some strange town and then going, what are you talking about? That's all I really remember. Like I managed to call Marjorie a couple of times. And the last time she said, okay, we've got it all set up. They're going to be there. I think it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday because I was like, oh God, there's going to be people everywhere. That's the one day most of the staff had off. And I thought, oh, that's not going to work, but okay. And they came and they, um, I'll send you a picture of the campus. And, but they had to drive through quite a ways into the built, into the fields and through the old campus. And they came up to where the um, dorm was. And I was outside, so I knew it was them because there was a car there. These two really large Native American men get out. This one little white guy, and I thought, well, it's a good thing they're with him because I've been talking a lot with this guy. He can't help me for anything if somebody comes after us. But there was nobody around. We walked through the dorm, and I said, I need to go lock my door and get my backpack. And I wanted to lock the door. And he goes, why are we locking the door? And I just looked at him, and I said, because maybe they'll think I'm in there, and they won't come looking right away. And I, I hid under a blanket in the back of a, it was either a rabbit or a lacar. It was one of those weird, real, real small ones. And when we got towards the end, 
I, I looked out and I could tell we were almost out of the area. And he said, um, we're not out yet. I'll let you know. And then he said, hey, do you want to get out? And I was like, get out and what? Like, wave goodbye? What am I? No. I was like, no. And it was strange that he asked me that. I was, still don't know what he meant. And I was like, no. And I got out front of the blanket. I looked behind me and you could see the Shalako sign, which is like a big arch that's been there since the 20s. And they took me to the airport and the closest one was Wichita. And so that was, a, I think it was a couple hours ride, maybe an hour and a half, might be a little longer, I don't know. And I got on the first plane to Ohio where Marjorie was. Okay. Now, can you describe also, as you're talking about this, I'm trying to visualize, you know, when people tell me a story, I'm trying to imagine the setting, trying to imagine what kind of shape they're in. Like, are they exhausted? Do they look depleted? What what was happening for you just physically also at this time that you were going through all of this? Well, since I was pregnant, I was dealing with things that I didn't know either to chalk it up to being sick from like malnourishment, basically, because I was being fed plain ground beef three times a day. That's all I was getting fed. I mean, it was cooked, but it was plain ground. Like you would go to ground beef, but then throw it on a plate. Once in a while, I'd get a stale donut. Um, a glazed round one. And once in a while, I'd get very, very, very rotten mushy cantaloupe. Wow. I have to say, I did not eat with everybody else, with the other staff. I don't know. I can't imagine that's what they were getting. But Scientology is known for feeding shit to people. So I can't say that I was the only one, but I've never seen rations like that. Usually it would be rice and beans or... Lentils sometimes that they were really bad, low on budget, but never just plain ground beef. Sometimes, you know, um, if there was a student there, um, like they would get a care package and, you know, I remember a couple of times I had candy and I don't know else, I don't remember where I got it. So I would have to have gotten it from a student that snuck it to me or something because another staff wouldn't have. It was really hard because there was no communication. Like, there was people all around me, but nobody would talk to me, and I couldn't talk to them. Um, if I did, they would just wouldn't answer me, you know, and wasn't allowed to call home, wasn't allowed to tell my boyfriend that I was pregnant. He said they would take care of it, and then I never saw him until four years ago, so 25 years later. Um, can we go to that for one second and then come back? Because when you just said that four years ago, you were in touch with him. He um, looked me up, and he found me on Facebook. He, he was illegal when he was in L.A., and they knew that. But um, when things got bad, they decided to pull the illegal card and it turned him in. So immigration came, and he got deported eventually back to Guatemala. Um, and he found me. I had, hadn't looked for him in, for years because I just had too many emotions, and it had been too long and whatever. And um, I he was very shocked and um, happy to hear from him, but I had a lot of anger. Uh, so I knew I had to go see him. Uh, I had to speak to him face to face because I hadn't seen him since saying goodbye to him when I went to the airport in 1992, pregnant, but not knowing I was pregnant. I expecting to come back within a week, you know? So I had to go see him before I was going to allow our son, my son, to get involved with him. I had to know what type of person he was. Mm-hmm. And not just over the computer. So I went to Guatemala recently. 
few years ago and um, was met with a stranger, no idea who he is now, not the person I knew, not, a, not even a, a glimmer of him in there, a criminal, not a good person, really turned out bad for him. He got the raw end of the deal. Wow. Okay. He, he still defends them. He got mad at me saying that our problem was Scientology. He defends them. When I went there, I was expecting him to be like, tell me about Shalaka. Tell me what happened. Tell me, you know, fill in the blanks. And it was, well, I'm sure they did what they thought was right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? <laughs> they ruined us. I mean, they ruined our family before we even knew we were having a family. So I held on to a lot of anger and he had me. And I took that as a big fuck you to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like, where's your, it, it, it was just like it had been yesterday. You know, like, where's your loyalty? Then I realized it's been a lifetime. And I'm expecting him to still be loyal to me, but he's still loyal to the cult. Like, it was just too much. So I was like, nope, this isn't going to work. You're not. I mean, I let my son know up to him he's not going to harm him but I didn't think it, he would get much out of the relationship but it's up to him he's they've talked a few times that's all I can really say about that mm-hmm. okay okay it's good for people to see how multi-layered it is right yeah people are like well don't dwell on it but when it touches everything I can't find an aspect to talk about something or to relate it to something that it doesn't touch and it's not like I'm going, oh, I have to find something related to Narcanon so I can answer this question. You know, but sometimes it, it's just, it seeps through. I mean, not just me, my children, their relationships with other people, their relationship with me, my relationship with people. I mean, just everything. It's so, it's, it's just destructive. And it needs to be, it, I, you know, the religious part, whatever, the cult can continue. They have their freedom of whatever they want. But Narcanon itself needs to shut down. It needs to be closed. Wow. Okay. Okay. It's fraud through and through. There is, if they were to say, okay, we're going to, you're going to come to the rehab and we're not going to even say the word addiction. You're never going to hear it. We're never going to say the word, you know, enabler, anything. We're not going to talk about sponsor, but you're still, we want you to give us $30,000. We're going to teach them Scientology and put them in a sauna, then if people want to do it then, perfect. But that's not what's happening. There is no disclosure. There is no transparency. It's all deceit and lies. And so, you know, I, and I want to be able to hear more and taking me back to where I, I, I purposely kind of jumped you until four years ago, and then, but we can go back. But I remember saying to someone once who got involved in a, in a very bad group one time, you know, what does it do to you when people ask you that question, you know, why did you get involved in a cult? Which I always think, you know, as it's a misnomer because no one gets involved in a cult, that at least they don't know it at the time. But what made you stay? And, you know, and, and, you know, he said that they had really, from the start, promised him the world and had all these ways to substantiate that this was going to be coming true. And that the only people who failed in their lives were the people who had left this or who had never found it. And there were all these testimonials to quote unquote, prove it. And he said, I never would have gotten involved if they had actually sat me down and told me exactly what it was going to be from the start. And he said, because if I had been walking down the street and 
someone came up to me, the same person who recruited me, and instead they said, hey, you seem like someone who really is a good person who has potential in his life. I want to really work hard to derail you. And I, I want to make sure that I take away everything you've worked towards. And I want to make sure also that your parents who have helped you get to this point will um, be completely frustrated that their efforts or financial backing or whatever it was to get you here uh, was for naught. And we're, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be kept from going to your father's funeral. I mean, he was telling me his own personal story. You're going to be kept from being able to get dental care and medical care. You're going to be depleted of your savings. You're going to be saying goodbye to all your friends. And then after five years, you're going to be left with nothing. Do you want to get involved? <laughs> right? And so... You can never make a fully educated decision. So I wonder if someone had approached you and told you, honestly, what was going to be happening, how would, what would the presentation have sounded like? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a great question. It would have been, hey, you know, I see you have a real capacity to feel empathy for people. And I know that you want to, like, use that and use what you've already learned about yourself and what you should, shouldn't do to help other people. So we're gonna take that, we're gonna throw it all away. We're gonna make sure you never listen to yourself again. We're gonna make sure you second guess everything about not only yourself, but the people that love you, that you've never had a reason to doubt that they loved you or that they wanted the best for you. But we're gonna make sure you doubt every single thing that comes out of their mouth from now on. And we're going to make sure that every intention that you think the world has is flipped on its backside so that only we can help you. Yeah, sure not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay, so that is, but I guess when you think back on it, that's what it was. I mean, just putting it in that little nutshell. Mm -hmm. They, They took my ability to make the choice for myself. When you lie to people, when you deceive, you know, and we practice, we did drills of selling of um, if they confront you with this question, how to how to answer it, how to lie, how to get to the answer you want to come up. Mm-hmm. You know, we did all of this stuff. So it was preparation because we knew we were deceitful. We knew we were deceiving people. We knew we were lying. You know, they took away my discernibility. They took away my ability to make a choice, to look at both sides, to weigh things, to debate things, to have a conversation and change your mind about something or be swayed by somebody else's opinion. I mean, all of this is taken away from you. You doubt everything about yourself, at least I have. I'm almost 50 years old and I got out when I was in my early 20s and I questioned a lot of things that I shouldn't be questioning at this point in my life about my decision-making ability, you know, for myself, for my children, for, you know, it's, it's hard. And that's what they take away. They take away your right to choose. Right. We're never given the truth to begin with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when you're on staff, you perpetuate it and you continue it. And then you do it to other people, what's being done to you. It, it, you like continue with the, we're here for your best, your fa- you know, your family, if they're, be negative about Narconon or if they're being negative about Scientology, then the problem's that. It's not us. We're going to get rid of your family while you're in rehab. 
it's just they didn't sign up for that. They didn't sign up for us to go in and fuck with their family dynamics. Unless it had to do with like, you know, being around someone that's toxic for you or something that would have made sense in some therapeutic way. They were subject to, de- you know, disconnection just like anybody else involved with the cult. Okay. All right. So then here you, to go, to go back to sort of the part of the story where you are suddenly out. So is there more that you want to talk about, about leading up to that time? Or I'm curious also how you were doing when you got out. Um, when I got out, I, I immediately got a job. I got a job with an answering service. I was, I just threw myself into normal life. I didn't think I didn't allow myself time to think or reflect. I got a roommate and got an had an apartment relatively soon because I was able to move in with a girl that already had a place, had my baby, and was just kind of like on autopilot for a good th- two or three years. And then I started like socializing a little bit. I didn't tell. The problem was I wasn't telling people where, why I was in Ohio. Like people say, well, where's your family? Why aren't you, you know, where? and I would start to lie. Well, I'm just here, you know, and that became a problem. And so then I started telling the truth, and then that became a problem because no one had heard of Scientology back then. And it was like, what are you talking about? You know, even the psychiatrist that I went to go see because I had a lot of um, undiagnosed. Like I was recent, not recently, years ago after I got out, I was diagnosed with PTSD and bipolar, and um, a lot of it stemmed from afterwards. I think because there was no one to talk to. And the people I did talk to called me a liar to my face. That is why to this day, if anybody in the critic community or exes or anybody wants to call me a liar about Narcanon and Scientology, they need to know what they're talking about. When I'm confronted with, that's not true. That's not true. It's like, what are you talking about? Why would I lie about it? Right. So there are so many times um, that people will be called liars in you know, in, in this field and other where uh, people don't want um, the people who are sharing what is really happening to be believed, of course. Um, but it is, it's such a hollow um, insult, I think, because there's no gain. And, you know, it's not like you're getting paid off by someone to do it. It's not like it makes your life happier to say it and it also doesn't make your life happier to have to really look at what you devoted yourself to and see it for what it really is and what it really was because that's a hard thing to hold a mirror up to um i think you know calling you a liar also it's a very common thing i mean i've been called that everyone everyone does this almost everyone on my show has been called that so welcome to it's a it's a lovely club and uh you're welcome (laughs) but it also is so juvenile you know you're a liar that's sort of how it sounds like really that's what you got you know and so it it has sort of it's been had an interesting impact on some people where they say when they're called that when they really are just saying this is what happened to me um and they're saying it knowing that they're taking some risk and so they're but they're still willing to do it because they feel like it's the right thing to do when they're called a liar it actually for some people feels 
like it's this vote of mm, confidence. Like, okay, you're now saying something that people don't want other people to know. Um, because if a group were really doing things that were totally fine and everything were above board and you, you had a bad experience or you just didn't get out of it what you had wanted, a healthy organization would say, you have the right to say those things. I mean, that you know, if you had, you know, a sponsor who wasn't very good or you had a bad reaction to something that we did, good to know, we'll change our, our formula and our format and um, thanks for the information or, you know, we're sorry that you feel that way or that's your memory of it. That wasn't our intention, um, but you have the right to, to speak. And, um, and so as soon as you're kept from having the freedom of speech and also when there is that sort of, you know, quote unquote, fair gaming, right. go right after you and say that, you know, you're a liar and they'll try to defame your, your credibility, then you know, you've touched a nerve and that's how change is made and that's how information gets out and that's how people get what they need in order to make a fully edu educated decision and that's also how prevention is done. Right. That's, yeah, I need to think of it. That's a good point. My, my first thing I'm thinking, if I'm a liar, then why can I go teach or, you know, pull, I can like do the deliver the communication course, the TR course, anywhere, to any Scientologist, and they wouldn't know that I learned that through Narconon. Mm. I was like, you know, grill, where did you get trained? You know, blah, blah, blah. I was like, look, I'm telling you, I, I have no other way of knowing as much as I know, except for through them. Mm -hmm. So if it's not Scientology, then how do I know all this? You know, that's what's been thrown up to me. Like, well, um, Narconon does good still. Like there are exes saying Narconon isn't as close to Scientology as you're making it out to be. Okay, um, then what? I just woke up with the brain of Rain Man and Scientology. I, you know, I <laughs> the only place I would have learned it is there. Right. So knowing also that you had these diagnoses, were you able to get some support? Were you able to find people who you could talk to about your experiences? Uh, no. I've had some very uh, good psychologists at like Ohio State speak to me and listen to me, and they they always feel okay, we're going to get you a referral, and they come back a couple of days later and say we can't find anybody that specializes in any cult exiting, which is what you need. Mm -hmm. And I was always their recommendation. It was either cult exiting or um, exit counseling or what's the other deprogramming, you know, type of thing. Right. Like, like, but we don't have anybody like, even anywhere in Ohio that we can find. And I was told that time and time and time again. Um, I wasn't willing to go into like a group counseling type of thing, um, just because for me, it was, it was too much. You know, when um, people contact me, they will sometimes say, hey, are you part of my insurance plan? And if I'm not, they'll try to appeal to their insurance to see if they can come see me because I have this area of specialization. And sometimes insurance companies, there's one actually that's huge out here that I shouldn't name, <laughs> but um, uh, people are able to get 
you know, um, healthcare and other kinds of care for uh, a lower fee and their whole network of these centers run by the same company. And there, there were two people who went back to the powers that be there and said, you know, I really want to be able to meet with Rachel or come to her group. And, and they said, well, first, you know, let's see who we have in network for you. And both of these people were referred to a woman who is a Wiccan high priestess who <laughs> happens to also be a therapist. Honey, there's nothing wrong with being a Wiccan high priestess, whatever, but that doesn't mean they can do cult counseling. What is that about, right? <laughs> so, uh, but they both showed me the same referral they had gotten and that was from this major company that doesn't have anybody else. And it shouldn't be that way. It should not be that way, that people have such limited options. And that people don't have people in their area or within their insurance to be able to really help them or an insurance company that's not willing to go out of network to help clients even when they don't have someone in network who can help them anyway. Okay. But you're saying that was my little, my little soapbox, my little Wiccan, Wiccan adventure. But uh, what, what I think is important is to know that so many people like you are on your own. You have to find a way to kind of, in a piecemeal way, get the help that you need. So there are things that I do uh-huh. that I do for myself. You know, I write, I talk to a set group of people. I have things that I do that make me feel like I'm still involved and still have a foot in of activism while not letting it be my life or trying to make it my life when it's just a part of it. Mm-hmm. So there are things that I do that help myself over the years. Um, but as far as like as a community, the mental health community is really letting people. I mean, it's it's bad. It's you know, it, it's really bad. It's impossible to find help sometimes. It is. And it's hard because you don't want to have um, a reinforcement of the same message that you got when oh, for a lot of people when when they were getting involved in something it was because they were wanting to get help or wanting to get therapy or or wanting to help others and you're trusting another person to be the wisdom for you that's a hard pill to swallow because now i've got to trust you too jesus you know i don't even know you right exactly as a community i would like to see so you know people coming out of cults and controlling relationships and situations that of the same type of mind, you know, mind screw going on. I'd like to see us somehow help ourselves, help each other. But it just seems like it's, you know, we just end up fighting. <laughs> exactly. So I know we just have a few minutes left, but I, I know, you know, you, you talked about having become a parent and I, and I know that you are one. And I wonder, you know, for people who are, who are, have had to deal with healing themselves and dealing with trauma, that when they become parents, it makes an impact on their own parenting and also some of the decisions that they make and also some of the lessons they want to make sure to teach their children to sort of keep them safe in the world. And I wonder if that's been a part of how you've raised your own family. Well, unfortunately, because um, once I came out to Ohio, I never left. I never went back to my home in California where all my family is. Mm-hmm. My children grew up without any extended family at all. It was me and only me. When I say it was only me, mm-hmm. 
it was only me. Wow. Every Thanksgiving, every holiday, every Easter, every birthday. I did not realize probably for a few years the damage that that alone was doing to them. To this day, they're not close to any of their cousins or my sisters. In insulating them, I also brought them into my isolation. And because I didn't, if I think if I had had like my sisters or a partner or my mother or my dad or, you know, somebody. Right. have, you know, just said, hey, we'll take them, you know. But, you know, but I, it was a pressure cooker. It was just me and them, so I kept it very low, and I was not willing to let anybody in to mess up the peace that we had. Right. Okay. But it also, in the long run, made them think probably, "Where? Why aren't we good enough?" And I never thought that I was doing that to them. I never would have done it to them. Mm. To this day, they'll say, "Well, we don't know how to have a relationship because we didn't know our family. Mm-hmm. It was you and." I don't think they always say it to be hurtful, but, you know, they're people too, and they have their feelings. They're certainly entitled to them, but I think that's been the hardest. It's just the alienation that I, first they put on me, and then I continued it, because I felt that's, I didn't try to trust my family. I didn't trust anybody. <sighs> wow. I want people to know. Yes, yes. Narconon is in the school systems throughout the nation, here and there. They're, they drop off literature. They come and they speak under different names. Drug-free, um, drug-free world, uh, way to happiness, drug-free foundation. There's all types of different names. And you have to do your research. If you're sending somebody to a rehab, even if it doesn't say Narconon, check it out. If it's run by anything that you can't look up and get a straight answer to. Keep looking. Don't just send them because they're going to come back with more problems than they went with. Right. Okay. Yes. And it's true that a lot of these places are in school systems, in the prison system, in counseling centers. I know even my uh, one of my kids who's studying in college had someone come in to talk to, it was representing this thing that turned out to just be complete pseudoscience. And I mean, he, was livid because he's my kid. (laughs) I got this text that was like, you know, basically four pages or whatever, you know, and, you know, going on a ramp and how dare they. And then they, they college paid them a lot for this. And it was all this woo that can't be, you know, proven. And, and it was really like PR for some organization that's making money off people and students and colleges. But yes, do your research. It's wonderful advice. And also that if, if a name sounds like something legit, you still need to do your research. Yeah, Google the heck out of it. Ask around, but keep putting the name in. And don't, I mean, just put an extra 20 minutes into it because it, the people that weren't were saying no to us, like when we would try to sell them, were the people that said would say, "Oh wait, I read or I know," uh, you know, they already had a fact that we didn't give that. When you're in that situation, you just, I mean, you think they're all accredited that they're, you know, under federal regulations that there has to be some, co- you know, health code and safety code and all this and that. It's not true. Well. 
I I thank you for sharing your story and and I I know that there's so much there and so much more there to your story and I hope one day we get to get into some other the details and if there's anything else that you feel that you know after we finish talking that you want to be able to bring up or get more into or something you forgot. I, I usually think of a million things that I wish I asked and I forgot. So I'm speaking mostly for me, but for you too, if there's something else that you want to ask, please contact me. And I, and I, I wanted to say also about your, your point about insulating your family, which turned out to be isolating them. You do what you feel you need to do for safety. And in the long run, it may or may not have been the better of the decisions, whatever that means. But in the meantime, I think coming out of a situation like this, there are many people who feel they don't have a choice. And it's the only way to stay safe. And it's the only way to safeguard the people they love. So I just don't want you to to blame yourself for something that is going to have its own ramifications, but there could have been worse ramifications doing it a different way. So you never know. Um, I just, I, I thank you for your openness and, and all the work that you do to be a resource to people and educate people about what to watch out for and all the good prevention work you do. And so you are, you are much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. Great to talk to you. I'll talk to you soon. One more thing before you go. I am very glad that Samantha wanted to tell her story. I hope you had a chance to hear part one from last week's podcast. If not, please check it out. And this week we continue with her story where she opens up about the pain that she endured after leaving and how it informed her decisions about how much safety she wanted to ensure for her family and how much she needed to provide a separate life of sorts in an environment that felt safe in an environment that was enclosed and sometimes shut out from the rest of the world. Sometimes that happens when people have been traumatized. They just don't know who they can trust, so they keep themselves and their loved ones away. And in part, it's because they don't want to have unknowns and they don't want to have the experience again of someone taking away their power and control. And they have every reason to feel that way. So today, I want to address something that Samantha was saying about Narconon, that when people went into the program and it turned out that they were not on narcotics, and it seemed then that the program itself, being a business, was not quite ready to say goodbye to potential customers. And she said they would then go on to ask them if they'd ever been exposed instead to secondhand smoke or the weed killer Roundup, or had ever had x-rays or dental work, and on and on. Basically things that everyone has either done or been exposed to. So they would go down a list of common life occurrences and highlighting them as dangers and problems that they need to help you with. This is an organization's way of saying, we will find any reason to have you need what we're going to try desperately to sell you. And I have a term for that, which I've come to call a cure in search of a problem. If you're told that you can benefit from a particular kind of medicine or benefit from a particular kind of therapy or detox or that you have to go to a treatment center or have to participate in some sort of psychotherapy group or whatever it is that is supposedly supposed to help you, and it seems that your issues are not really something that you actually need help with or even something they can help you with, 
but there's no taking no for an answer, it's because it's a business or because they want to have you be dependent on them for one reason or another. And it also happens that sometimes when people go down a list of things and they can really say, no, that's never happened to me. A program that is not ready to have you leave quite yet will say, well, these things could happen to you in the future. And so we can provide this treatment for you as a preventative measure. Or they might say, well, the reason that you don't remember that these things happened to you is because they were so traumatizing that you repressed these memories. And we can help you then with all of that. It's like they're a dog on a bone. They don't give up. And if you get up to go, they might say something to hook you and reel you back in and say, not so fast. There is still work to be done. Maybe these things even happened in a past life. Who knows? And the following are all examples shared with me by clients of mine who were ready to go, but then were asked one of the following questions. Well, you could leave now, but we can help you with things that have become toxins in your system, like, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever felt jealous? Have you ever been upset about something to the point of yelling? Have you ever seen anything or experienced anything that has left you feeling scared? Have you ever wanted to take drugs? Did you ever have a drink? Did you ever want to have a drink? Did your family ever move to a new house? Has anyone caused you to feel betrayed? Have you ever been left out of something socially? Have you ever argued with a sibling? Have you ever laid out in the sun? Have you ever been bitten by a spider? Have you ever used an electric heating pad? Have you ever had an air conditioning system that did not have freshly cleaned vents? And so on, and so on. And my favorite of all, is the following question a client told me was the last question. Do you ever get bothered by being asked random questions? I just couldn't help but laugh when she said that. It is wrong to do this to anyone because it pathologizes just life itself and can often make people feel that they've been traumatized and deeply hurt and endangered or are somehow bad people and in religious groups are made to feel that they're sinful people and in need of help. Life is hard enough just day to day without somebody trying to make you feel fearful of the inherent danger in an event in your life or some exposure you got that was not necessarily dangerous and without someone exaggerating that damage that has been caused to you by something happening to you and then giving you something to needlessly worry about. Millions and millions of dollars are made by giving people something to worry about. When I lived in New York, I had a very revealing conversation one time with a man who was offering quote-unquote psychic readings along the beach in Coney Island. You meet a lot of interesting characters there. He was kind of a showman and thought that I was someone who he could talk to freely, clearly, probably too freely, because I was not a customer but was asking questions about how one starts doing this kind of work. Of course, I was doing some research for my work by asking him this question. In this field, sometimes we want to know what the motivator is and also how people start doing this and how they keep themselves in business. We want to know what the game is. And he thought I was sort of in on the game because I was interested. So he told me this was a second career for him. 
that he used to sell car insurance. And then he took a moment and he looked away and he kind of chuckled, saying that he realized as he said that out loud to me that he was basically doing the same thing now as he was doing before. I was a bit confused because it didn't look like he was sitting there selling car insurance. And I asked him what he was talking about. And he said, I used to be an insurance salesman. And turns out, I still am. And then he said quite shamelessly and with what seemed to me like heartless satisfaction. And now that I think about it, my second career is a lot easier than my first. Because I used to have to get all the information about the car that people drove, their ages, their driving history, and how many cars they owned, to know how to crunch the numbers and what kind of policy to sell them. And now it's like I only need to convince them that they have a car and need insurance for it. Saves me a lot of aggravation. Wow, just wow. You know when you have a conversation with someone where you think to yourself, I will never forget this conversation? Yeah, this was one of those times. And I share it with you because I also don't want you to forget that conversation. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.